Chapter 14, Epilogue, Believing the Words of Jesus. It's a most significant fact, often overlooked, that Jesus equates genuine faith with belief in his sayings and words. He who hears my message and believes him who sent me has life in the coming age. John 5, verse 24. This insistence on the message and the teaching of Jesus is strongly emphasized by the Synoptic Gospels also, and it cautions us against divorcing Jesus from his own words and thus building for ourselves an image of another Jesus. John reports Jesus as saying, I quote, He who rejects me and my sayings will be judged by those very sayings. John 12, verse 48. Believing Moses, that phrase, is the same as believing his writings. John 5, verses 46 and 47. And in the same context, believing Jesus is equivalent to believing his words. John 5, verse 47. This seems to lay to rest any question about the importance of so-called doctrine as compared with practice. And I quote again, For anyone who does not remain in the teaching of Jesus does not have God. 2 John verse 9 And so we are puzzled, I note, that Dr. James Kennedy seems to miss the enormous emphasis placed on the teachings of Jesus. He writes, and I quote, Many people today think that the essence of Christianity is Jesus' teaching, but that's not so. Christianity centers not in the teachings of Jesus, but in the person of Jesus as incarnate God who came into the world to take upon himself our guilt and to die in our place. That's a quotation from Dr. James Kennedy in an article entitled, How I Know Jesus is God, which appeared in Truths That Transform in 1989. Jesus' own creed, I insist, is central to all he said and did. But does our tradition faithfully reflect that so-called Jewish creed. According to the Savior, it is not possible to believe him if we are not prepared to believe Moses. John 5, verse 46 and 47. Failure to grasp the creed of Israel and what Moses said about the coming Messiah, notably in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 18, will lead to disastrous results when it comes to believing Christ. Christians are evidently supposed to believe everything that Jesus said, whether it be exhortation to Christian conduct or sayings relative to his own person. The two are inseparable in the Bible, so that so-called doctrine may never be set in opposition to matters of conduct. A relationship with Jesus can be built 
only through his word and words. Christ's words are the vehicle of his self-impartation. By them, the atmosphere, so to speak, and mind of the Spirit is transferred to the believer. It may be that Christians are breathing the contaminated air of Greek philosophy and would witness a striking improvement in their spiritual health if they tried breathing the pure atmosphere of the Hebrew biblical thought world. Successful Christianity depends on the Savior's instruction that, and I quote, you abide in me and my words abide in you. John 15 verse 7. Compare with that Second John verse 9. All false belief is dangerous because it's built on a rejection of what Jesus said. No apology need be made, therefore, for trying to find out what, in fact, according to John and the other Gospels, Jesus did say about himself and his relationship to God. Throughout all the Gospels, belief in Jesus is synonymous with belief in what Jesus said as well as in what he did and does, and indeed what he will do at his return in power and glory to establish his kingdom on the earth. It matters very much, therefore, what a Christian understands and believes. Current opinion often tells us that so-called doctrine divides and should be avoided. The very opposite is true. Doctrine based on the witness of Jesus' words is the one hope for unity in the present chaotic division in the churches. The church appears to have overlooked the core of Jesus' teaching that repentance and forgiveness depend on the convert's intelligent reception of the Messiah's own gospel about the kingdom of God. Mark 4 verse 11 and 12, Luke 8 verse 12, and above all Luke chapter 4 verse 43. Mark 12 verses 28 and following presents Jesus as affirming his own belief in the unitary monotheism of the Jews. It is to that passage of Scripture that all discussion of the Godhead should refer. John's so-called Jewish monotheism is never in doubt. The Father is still, quote, the only true God, John 17, 3, or the one who alone is God, John 5, verse 44. And since Jesus is evidently a different person, from the Father, Jesus is not God. He's the fully authorized agent of God, the ideal King of Israel for whom the Old Testament yearned. Jesus perfectly expresses the character of his Father and relays his message, his gospel message, about the kingdom. Luke 4 verse 43. Thus it may be said, that, quote, the fullness of deity dwells in Jesus. Colossians 2, verse 9, 
And I note that very similar language about the fullness of God dwelling in Christians is found in Ephesians 3 verse 19. But this does not mean that Christians are God, obviously. John's fully human Jesus is not only the Jesus presented by canonical scripture, but also a more attractive model for imitation than some traditional versions of Jesus. One who is really God, in disguise, would seem to be so far exalted above us that we would have no chance of living as he did. But John's Jesus, though he is unique by virtue of the Spirit given to him without measure, John 3.34, does not distance himself from the disciples as though they would be incapable of doing what he did. He constantly promises them that just as he has been sent into the world, they will be, quote, sent into the world to perform as great or even greater works than he. John 17, verse 18, John 14, verse 12, and just as he is one with the Father, so also the disciples are to be one in the same manner. John 17, 11 and verse 21. Just as he was sent to announce the kingdom of God, Luke 4, verse 43, so are they. The object of this book, therefore, has been to propose ways of believing more accurately what Jesus believed about God and himself, and thus bringing our own doctrines into line with his. I quote, The one who abides in the teaching of Messiah has both the Father and the Son. 2 John 9 Every word spoken by the Messiah is precious, for the words that he speaks carry, quote, spirit and life. John 6, verse 63. They are the only words, in fact, which can guide us to, quote, life in the coming age, the life of the kingdom of God. John does not differ in his understanding from the synoptics by omitting frequent use of the term kingdom of God. John's Jesus speaks of the kingdom as everlasting life properly rendered, according to its Hebrew meaning, life in the coming age. John's vocabulary in his account, both of the identity of Jesus and his message, must be translated back into its Hebrew original, so that an unvarnished picture of Jesus may be recovered from beneath any distorting layers of tradition which may obscure him. It is with this in mind that we urge a reconsideration of some of the post-biblical ways of understanding John, which hamper an intelligent reading of the Bible and obstruct faith in Jesus and obedience to what he believed and taught. I mean, of course, by retranslation, not literally translating the Greek into Hebrew, but sensing the Hebrew mind lying behind the Greek words of the New Testament. 
The recovery of belief in Jesus as the Messiah will dispel the fog of confusion which has enveloped the gospel as it was proclaimed by Jesus. At present, much contemporary evangelism proceeds as though there was no gospel preaching until Jesus died. A glance at the synoptic gospels reveals that this is quite untrue. Jesus announced the gospel about the kingdom long before he made any reference to his death and resurrection. See, for example, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, Luke 4, verse 43, and Luke 18, verses 31 to 34. It is misleading, therefore, to build a theological system on certain texts in Paul's epistles without first taking into account the Hebrew Bible and the synoptic accounts of the gospel as it came from the lips of Jesus. Loss of clear understanding about who Jesus is has been responsible for an entrenched theological tradition that Jesus somehow resented the title Messiah and that the New Testament struggles to replace Messianism with categories more congenial to Gentile converts. The doctrine of the Trinity is an unfortunate diversion which replaces the biblical focus on the Messiah and his coming kingdom with questions of metaphysics and so-called relations within the Godhead. Christians have for too long been looking in the wrong direction, backwards towards the descent from heaven of a so-called eternal son instead of forward to the arrival of the Messiah in the glory of his kingdom. It is no longer sufficient to claim the simple question, Jesus equals God, as a valid reflection of the New Testament. Jesus is nowhere called a theos. I add that John 20 verse 28 and Hebrews 1.8 are apparent exceptions only. The definite article is used in these verses with evocative meaning. In neither verse is Jesus addressed as God in the absolute sense. Compare with that C.F.D. Mole's comment in his An Idiom Book of the New Testament Greek. It seems quite amazing to us that there's no single case in Scripture of the word God in thousands of references to the Supreme Creator which can be shown to mean the triune God. If the word God nowhere carries the meaning God in three persons, then the case for the Trinity collapses. The evidence strongly suggests that the triune God is foreign to the biblical revelation. Intelligent Bible study must search for a revised Christology which allows for the obvious and persistent subordination of Jesus to the one God. The category of Messiah, the supremely elevated divine agent of God, will be found adequate to account for everything the New Testament has to say about Jesus. 
religious service, as described by the Greek word latrevo, I'm using the modern Greek pronunciation, as we customarily do. This is directed in its 21 occurrences to God the Father, while homage is paid to the Messiah as the agent of the one God. A professor of theology remarked in a course on Christology, this was D.M. Scholler at Northern Baptist Seminary in 1986, he remarked that our tradition dances best to a docetic tune. In the interest of recovering the full humanity of Jesus, the glory of his Messiahship, and the unmatched majesty of the one God, his Father, we propose that it should dance once again to a Hebrew biblical melody. And no one perhaps orchestrates that melody better than John.